Earlier in John's Gospel, we read about this Jesus who always was but became flesh. In fact, John said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word needs a voice to communicate himself to the world around him. Did Jesus have a voice? Yes, he did. And his name is John the Baptist. And in the text before us tonight, we'll find out just a little bit more about him. Let me call your attention to John chapter 1, uh, verse 19. That's where we'll begin. John chapter 1, verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John. Uh, folks, that is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who wrote this book under study. In fact, interestingly, in the 21 chapters in John's Gospel, not once does he, the author, mention himself by name. Not even once. He wanted to call people's attention to the Lord Jesus, so he's very much in the background. So the John we're reading about here is John the Baptist. This is the testimony of that one. When the Jews, usually when you read that term in the New Testament, we're not speaking about all the Jews. We're speaking about the Jewish religious leadership. You will see that's the case here. Uh, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites, You've heard about that term. Priests are always Levites, but Levites are not always priests. That's how you can distinguish them. Priests and Levites are from the tribe of Levi, but not all the Levites are priests. Some are assistants to the priests. Those are the Levites. So we read here, this is the testimony of John. Now you know it's John the Baptist. When the Jews... Now you know that's a group of the Jewish religious leaders sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That was the headquarters. That was the Washington, D.C., if you will, of the day. That was the seat of government. And so the Jewish religious leaders got together uh, some priests and Levites and sent them on a mission. They sent them to John the Baptist to ask him who are you? Now, why were they so interested? Well, this John the Baptist was stirring up a lot of trouble, getting a following, if you will. Many people were going out to see him and hear him. He was getting attention, and the religious leaders were threatened by it, so they sent this delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem out into a more rural area to put to John the Baptist this question, who are you? And notice his response, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. By the way, uh, Christ is a Greek word meaning Messiah or anointed one. Uh, most of you know that, and you forgive me if if I'm embarrassing you by repeating it, but I, I remember a time when I came into church for the first time and I heard the word, the phrase, Jesus Christ. I must tell you, I'm not ashamed of this. I didn't know. I thought Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. So that if he came in, I would say, nice to meet you, Mr. Christ. I mean, that's how I would refer to him. You know, I, I just didn't know these things. And so if you're at that point of getting to know Christ, great, you're in a safe place. You'll get to know more and more about him. So years 
later I found out Jesus was his name. It means Savior, and, and uh, Christ was a title. Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. So John said, they said to him, who are you? He doesn't tell them who he is. He tells them who he ain't. Very interesting. He says, I am not the Christ. That's a very interesting response since they did not directly ask him anything like that. They didn't ask about the Messiah, but John knew who they were interested in, who they were looking for. That's a good thing. In this day, there was a messianic hope. The people were desperate. Why? They were under a government that was quite oppressive. It was a government of Rome, and they were dying for liberation and freedom. They were looking for the Messiah, albeit a political Messiah, but still they had a messianic hope nonetheless. Don't you wish people in this day would be looking for outside help from Almighty God in the form of a Savior as well as in that day? Don't you wish people would stop looking for love and hope and peace and joy in all the wrong places, even during an election year? Folks, there ain't going to be nobody in the White House who can save us from what really ails us. It's not the economy, stupid. It's not the uh, environment. <laughs> it's a sin problem. Don't you wish that people would recognize sin and have a hunger for the Savior? Well, they will if we pray that. <laughs> oh, God, would you stir people up? Would you arouse in them a hunger for outside help? Would you pray? Oh, God, would you just in this day, it's so unstable and scary and threatening to so many people. Oh, God, would you make use of these tumultuous circumstances to conjure up in people's lives an interest in coming to know you. Well, that's what happens when the church prays. People do. Well, anyway, they had an interest in the Messiah. John knew about this. And what an opportunity for John to say, you know, they say, are you the Messiah? Are you Christ? What an opportunity for John the Baptist to say, yep, that'd be me. You know, what a temptation. Remember, maybe if it would be too much for him to lay claim to being the Messiah, surely he would have been tempted to say something more of himself than was true of himself. But he didn't. He didn't. He simply said, I am not the Christ. And so they kept coming. Verse 21, they asked him a follow-up question. Well, what then? Are you Eliyahu? That's how we say it in Hebrew. Are you Elijah? And he said, once again, I am not. Now, why in the world would they ask him about Elijah? Now, uh, at first, they rule out, okay, well, he's not the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah is not him. Well, let's see. Maybe he's Elijah. Why'd they ask him that? Well, um, Listen to this verse from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the Jewish expectation, having read their prophet Malachi, was that before Messiah comes, he will be preceded by this one called Elijah. Also, Elijah didn't die. Did you know that? He was caught up to the heavenlies in a chariot of fire. And so the Jewish expectation of the day is, before Messiah comes, let's keep our eyes open looking for Elijah. So if this John is not Messiah, oh, maybe he's the forerunner. So that's why they ask him, well, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? John's answer, negatory. No, I'm not, I'm not him. I'm not him either. So then they pr proceed and they say, well, then are you the prophet? And he answers, no. What prophet? 
Moses, a long time ago, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, spoke about this mysterious prophet. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So a lot of people thought, oh, that's, that's Moses is speaking about a real special prophet. Now, this guy is not the Messiah. We're a little disappointed, but uh, maybe he's Elijah. Oh, he's not Elijah, but could he be the prophet? And this too, John denied. Well, they just about had it. You can imagine their frustration. So they say in verse 22, they say, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who send us. Can you imagine if they went back to the big shots, the religious shots in the government over there in Jerusalem, and they said, report, and the report that this delegation gives is we found out he's not the Messiah, and we found out he's not Elijah. We found out he's not the prophet, and that's all we found out. That would not be good. So they are desperate now. They want John to identify himself. Who are you? So that we may give an answer. What do you say about yourself? And here's what he says about himself. In verse 23, I am a voice. I am a voice. That's what he said. Out of the whole world of possibilities, I am a Jew. Nope. I'm a good fisherman. Nope. I run marathon races. Nope. I have a good stock portfolio. Nope. I am a Baptist. Nope. I'm a voice. That's his, to John, that was his primary identification. If you're a Christ follower, you're a Christian, things may have been said to you, even in growing up, you are a bum, you'll amount to nothing. No, I am a voice. I am a voice. And what the voices have others have said to you about your identity is irrelevant. You are a voice. Brother, you are a new voice for the Lord. Whatever else may be true of you in the past, leave it. You are a voice like me. Listen, we got a promotion. We're a voice. Jesus is the word, but words need a voice to make them known. That's you. That's me. Folks, this is a great honor. John the Baptist said, this is who I am. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is what he was crying. Make straight the way of the Lord. Then he says, as Isaiah the prophet said, wow, Isaiah the prophet did say something 700 years before this that we're reading about. In fact, this is what Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And John said, that's me. The voice that Isaiah spoke about 700 years ago, that's me. That's me. Now, when Isaiah wrote, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. Do you know how they got there? They sinned against Almighty God. Who would be their shepherd? They, his sheep. And they essentially said to God, thank you, but no thank you. And when you do that, you become subject to predators. Here come the Babylonians. So the Babylonians took the Jews out of their land and enslaved them for 70 years. They made them a slave people. The Jews were mastered, bounded, lorded over, under control by slave masters. But God gives a hopeful word through Isaiah. Clear the way for the Lord, Israel, in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our 
God. A message telling the Israelites, there still is a way for you to be redeemed and for you to be delivered. And sure enough, God came through and delivered them from bondage and brought them back to their homeland, Israel. And now John is applying this to himself, and he's saying in the same sense, I'm a voice crying out to people in the wilderness. It's the wilderness of doubt. It's the wilderness of unbelief. It's the wilderness of apathy. I'm crying out, make straight away. Remove all obstacles. Build a highway for the king. That's what happened in that day. They didn't have super highways. If a king was going from point A to point B, someone would have to smooth it out, pave it, make it ready. Essentially, John is saying, this is who I am. I appeal to people. Remove whatever is in the way because King Jesus is ready to come straightway into your life and liberate you from the bondage of sin. That's what he says. That's who I am, said John. Your Messiah has come, said he. Make a way for him. I'm not the Messiah, John said. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm a voice announcing the willingness of Messiah Jesus to come straightway into your hearts. Earlier on, as I mentioned, he said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, Jesus, always was. And John was a voice boldly lifted up so as to make the Word, Jesus, known to others. John's voice was lifted up just as a herald preceded the coming of a great king. Jesus is coming. That's what he said. He desires to come to you right now. Therefore, remove any obstacles that are in the way. Well, here's what happened. Verse 24. Now, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now we know the name of the specific religious big shots who sent the delegation. They're called Pharisees. The word means separation, because that's what they did. They were so tied to religious ritual and tradition, they separated from profane, worldly things. These were sincere people. Don't, you know, the Pharisees get a bum rap. No, no, no. They were very sincere. They were very devout. They were intelligent. They were wealthy, probably. Well-schooled people. Deeply committed religious people. But... They were people who were terribly wrong. They were dead wrong about the Savior. You know, you could be rich and be wrong about Jesus. You could be well-educated and be dead wrong about Jesus. You could be sincerely religious, and you could be dead wrong about Jesus. And so John is a voice crying out even to people like this. They're looking for salvation in religious tradition and ritual, and there is no way to be saved through the traditions of man. John is crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. You, a sinner, need a personal relationship with a sin bearer. Your religion cannot save you. Jesus is the only one who can do that. So verse 25, they asked him, they said to him, well, then, why then are you baptizing? They're stuck on the wrong things. Look at here. If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Why are you baptizing? I kind of think they're missing the forest for the trees. You know what I mean? They're stuck on this. By what authority are you baptizing people, John the baptizer? You're not one of us. You didn't go to our school. You have no pedigree. What's up? All along, Jesus stands willing to save them. He's right in their midst. And they're stuck on the authority with which John presumes to be able to baptize people. You know, baptism is a very Jewish thing. I remember a 
You know, when I was a new Christian and I saw baptism like we saw tonight, I must tell you, I didn't understand a thing about it. Uh, it looked like a very foreign thing to me, very Gentile. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know my own roots. In the law of Moses in the Old Testament, there was something called the mikvah. It means a, in the Hebrew word, it means gathering of waters, sufficient to totally immerse uh, an average-sized human being. That's the requirement, a mikvah. So you thought baptism was your idea? Oh, come on. It was a Jewish thing. And, and we used to baptize uh, even things if you dropped something and profaned it. Uh, then you would, you would baptize it to, to symbolically cleanse it. Also, I mean, you can go to Israel today. You'll see mikvot baptistries all over the land. It's a very Jewish thing. In Moses' day, people were baptized. When they were baptized, you know what they said? Even out of word, they said, I accept the law as the cleansing agent for my sin. <gasps> well, when we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, we find out baptism is still there. But now when someone is baptized, that person is saying, oh, no, no, it's not the law that can cleanse me. I'm a lawbreaker. It's the Lord Jesus who cleanses me from sin. See that? So the Lord took a familiar practice and gave it an entirely new meaning. So anyway, John is baptizing. It's not that baptism was a new thing, but here's the new thing. He's baptizing Jews and Gentiles, holy moly, together because they're sinners in need of a Savior. And the religious system is freaking out. It cannot endure this that Jews and Gentiles are together in the same body of water, equally in need of sin through the same Savior. So they're dying here. So they're saying to John, what is up? By what authority do you do this? You see what I mean? They're not concerned about the sinner in need of a Savior. They're concerned about the a lack of credentials of the one doing the baptizing. That's what's going on. You see what I mean? Listen, if you have shared with people about Jesus, if you have engaged people in conversation about him, you have undoubtedly had the experience of people chasing rabbits. <laughs> you want to talk about the Lord Jesus, and they start saying, yeah, but the Bible is filled with errors. You see? And you try to bring them back to the Lord Jesus, and they say, yeah, yeah, but what about the people, the aborigines in Australia who have not heard? They're so concerned all of a sudden. You know, one time I got so mad, a person, I blew it, uh, I, I must admit. I was sharing with a the person, they brought up the aborigine in Australia. I said, wait, listen here. If you're so concerned about the lost aborigines in Australia, let's just stop talking now, and you pack up and move there. If you're so con so I kind of blew it. I think that person became a Buddhist as a result. <laughs> and we, bl we blow it from time. But anyway, so the deal, so this is the distraction. You know, John wants to introduce them to the one standing in their midst right there who's willing to save them. And they're stuck on baptism here, you see. So John brings them back to Jesus. That's what we have to do in conversation. This is what I usually do when I'm more polite. I usually say, look, that's a good question. We can get to that later, but right now, would you stay with me as we talk about the Lord Jesus? That's what I usually do. So, so John's bringing them back to him. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize you in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. You see, he's bringing their attention right back to, to the Lord. Why would John 
get in some theological discussion with these people about baptism, they don't even recognize the Messiah who is in their, in their midst. So people are willing to argue about side issues while the most important issue is put to the side. Don't, don't let people do that. Say, well, that's good. We'll get to that maybe later. But right now, let's talk about the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 27, John says, it is he, the one standing in your midst. Forget about baptism. Forget about me. It is he standing in your midst. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Don't look to me and my credentials. And we can argue about the theology of baptism later on. But, you know, this one who's standing in your midst who came after me, I can't, I'm not worthy to untie the thong on his sand. You know, that was the role of a slave. You know what I mean? And John said, I'm not even worthy to do, I'm not even worthy to do that. Verse 28, these things took place. Where? In Beit Ani. It means house of poor. Bethany, house of poor. Beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, there's another Bethany in Israel. Some of you perhaps have been there. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's famous. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from, that Bethany. To distinguish this Bethany from that Bethany, it says this took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. It wasn't the Bethany on the Mount of Olives. It was another Bethany where John was baptizing. Beyond the Jordan, where? We don't know. (laughs) We have some ideas, maybe. And when we go to Israel, our groups go there to see a potential site where where John baptized, but we don't know for sure. At any rate, he's saying this took place in that particular spot. This Bethany is distinguished from, from the other one. Now, here's the point. How could it be that those who had a messianic hope and expectation, that those who were looking for the Messiah, how could it be that they would miss him as they did, even as he stood in their midst? I would like to offer an explanation. It had to do with the kind of Messiah they were looking for. <laughs> they were looking for a, kind of a political Messiah, as most Americans are during this election year. Political Messiah. They were looking for a liberator from an oppressive government, Rome. Uh, They were looking for a a kingly Messiah who would beat up on those who had oppressed them. You know, this kind of thing. And they missed something. They missed the fact that Messiah came as a lamb first. And because they were wrong about his first coming, they are really unprepared for his second coming. How about you? See, if you're wrong about the first coming of Jesus, you're in a heap of trouble with regard to his second coming. You've got to get the first coming right. And the first coming, he came as a lamb. For what? To suffer and die. He, 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 he didn't come to free people politically from anything. He's not an economic Messiah. He didn't come to clean up the environment. He didn't come to do all these things we think are the big needs of the day. He came first as a lamb. First as a lamb. But he will come the second time as a lion. You know what he did the first time? He came to judge sin in his own crucified body. But you know what he'll do the second time? He will come to judge sinners. 
You've got to get the first coming of Jesus correct. And then not only do you have nothing to fear about his second coming, you long for it. You know what you do? You say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Lion of Judah. Don't miss this. Don't miss his first come. Anyway, these smart people, these religious people, the, these devout and sincere, well-educated people, all the rest, they couldn't fathom a Messiah who would become enfleshed, have dirty feet, suffer hunger and thirst, be rejected, shed tears, come from very humble roots, carpenter's son, they couldn't fathom that God would do for them what they in their pride insisted on doing for themselves, and that is save themselves. You've got to save yourself, religion says. God says, you can't. I came to save you. And they couldn't fathom this. They couldn't fathom this. You see what I mean? You call yourself the king of the Jews, the savior. Remember when he was impaled on the cross? Save yourself. He can't be our Messiah. He can't even save himself. Remember, remember that? They missed the first coming. Oh, yes, he could have. He could have called down the legions of heaven to do business right then and there. He chose to allow people to crucify him for you and for me so we could go free. The first time he came to judge sin, ours, so that when he comes the second time, we need not be judged as sinners. He already judged sin on the cross on our behalf. So anyway, they miss this. Folks, don't you think it's very important to help people to correctly understand what Jesus did the first time he came? Don't you think it's important to let them know he's going to come the second time? John said, I'm a voice crying out to people, prepare themselves for the Lord. Don't you think that's our primary role in life, to prepare people for Jesus' second coming? He's going to come Again, John repeatedly, you know what he did? He repeatedly insisted on his insignificance as he did here. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Remember he said that? Maybe he's right. Maybe he's kind of insignificant, but he sure didn't have an insignificant part to play in the plan of salvation. Jesus, the word, needed a voice. John was the voice. And though you and I are flawed, we are really flawed human beings, aren't we? And though we are imperfect and though we have a sin nature of our own and all the rest, still as redeemed people, we too have been given a very significant part to play in God's plan of salvation. We too are his voices. And we ought to be about the business of looking for opportunities to lift them up. And represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought not wake up in the day and say, this is my plan and this is my agenda for the day. We ought to say, Lord Jesus, I submit to your agenda. I'm your voice. Folks, that's our primary role. Could I tell you something? I want to discourage you. We're not going to fix a whole bunch of stuff that's broken economically, environmentally, and politically. We're not going to, and that's not our role. We're a voice crying out to people, make straight the way of the Lord, for Jesus is coming again. We are his voices. We ought to look for opportunities. So my wife sent me on a mission uh, was Thursday of last week. I pray, oh God, give me a chance at least once in the week to talk to someone about you. 
So, and what it was, she told me, go to this place in Friendswood. It was a church parking lot. That's what she told me to do. There's a truck there that's going to drop off food. We're ordering food now, apparently, from a truck. I don't know what's going on. It's supposed to be better and cheaper, and I don't know what is going on. I just have learned to say, yes, dear. That's how it works, the key to successful marriage. So I got in the car. She says, here's the piece of paper. Here's your code number, whatever. You just go over there, and you pick up the order, and that's it. All right, so I'm going. So I go over there, and I was the first one, first car to arrive. There was the truck, and there's a the guy outside. He tells me, pull around right here like this, come to the back of his truck. And uh, it had a Washington plate on it, Washington, state of Washington. I simply said to him, are you from Washington? He said, oh, no, I'm not. I'm from Idaho. And he starts talking and all the rest and stuff like that. He said, but I consider myself a Texan now. I said, really, why do you do that? He said, because I got a concealed handgun license. That's what he said. <laughs> That's how they associate us. And, and boy, how true that is, isn't it? But anyway, uh, so, so, so we're just talking. That's all. We're just, it's just conversation. Now cars start coming behind me. There were other people apparently sent on this mission to get food from this truck. I don't know. Um, so I said to him, man, I know you're busy and everything. But, and I just came up with 40. I had 40 words. That's it. I just, and remarkably, it's remarkable to me, those very words will appear on the screen. It's amazing to me. I just said to him, I know you're busy, but let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. And then I said to him, have you ever heard a message like that? Have you ever thought about something like that? He said, oh, yes, indeed I have. Jesus is my Savior too. And then he said, and I believe he is the only hope. He is the hope for the world. And I thought he is so right. Jesus is the only hope. Folks, we, we know how hopeless things are looking around us. Oh, no, no, no. There is hope. But Jesus is the only hope. And we who know him, don't you see, in this day of great hopelessness, we must become increasingly willing to lift up our voices and tell people about him. We had three people who have shared their glorious experiences. Folks, we ought to have uh, hundreds up here every Wednesday night. I'll make a habit of this if I remember. Everyone ought to be coming up here. Oh, I'll tell you about my opportunity. I'll tell you about my opportunity. Are we bragging? Are we boasting? Yeah, absolutely we are. We're bragging about the opportunities the Lord Jesus Christ gave us to live out our primary identity and calling. It is to be a voice. It is to be a voice. Make straight the way of the Lord. Like John, we are voices crying in the wilderness. What wilderness? Well, not a literal wilderness, but one just as real. Do you know we're crying out in a wilderness of immorality? I mean, I don't even know, and neither do you to make, I don't know what to make of the crazy things today. It's just, it's just, it's not even ordinary immorality. It's extraordinary immorality. It's a wilderness. We're crying out in the wilderness of immorality. We are crying out, look, folks, we are crying out in a very disappointing election year. I'll tell you one thing everyone has in common, and that is we couldn't come up with two better choices. I'm telling you, that's what everyone... You vote for who you want to, but, I'm, but that's what everyone has in common. What, in a country as big as ours? We couldn't come up with some better candidates, you know what I mean? So we're crying out 
in a wilderness of disappointment. We are crying. You know what? We're crying out in a wilderness of devastating weather patterns. Folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be 67 years old. I've lived, you know, a lot of years and seen weather. But it keeps coming extreme. Some of our wonderful people are in Louisiana helping out, flood victims and stuff. But it's one thing after another. And after something leaves Louisiana, it creeps up the coast, goes over here. You got fires over here, and you got this over there, and you got every, I mean, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. It's all over. It's international. We are crying out in a wilderness of devastating atmospheric conditions. You know what? We are crying out in a wilderness of depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders. I, I, I've never seen so much of it. Have you? Have you? I mean, when I grew up, we didn't have commercials with with stuff to help you go to sleep. Are you joking? It's just, but nobody can sleep anymore. Nobody sleeps. Everyone has the shakes. <laughs> We're crying out in a wilderness of depression and anxiety and fear and breakdown of societal foundations and all the rest that affects people today. This is the wilderness in which we're crying out. We must lift up our voices because we've been entrusted with the most hopeful, wonderful message of all time. We must cry out in this wilderness of confusion and instability and hopelessness that Jesus, the Messiah, came to give us hope. It's the hope of a new life and the hope of a, one day a new world and the hope of a new status and it's the hope of forgiveness of sins and the hope of adoption into his family, not as adversaries, but as sons and daughters of God. Folks, in just 40 words, everybody here can get up a conversation about the Messiah of hope with someone out there this week. I don't know if I shared this with you lately, but these are the 40 words. You'll see them up on the screen right here before you. All you got to do, no matter what the conversation is, it's the Astros, it's the Houston Cougars, it's good night, aren't they ever going to be finished? fixing 45? Well, the answer to that is no. But anyway, whatever the conversation is, you say, hey, but let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. Is there magic in those words? Of course not. Does it have to be 40? Can it be 42? No, no, it's got to be 40. Of course it could. Look, I will admit to you, I needed something to help me steer a conversation towards the Messiah of hope. Now, I didn't have that, and I walked away from so many opportunities. So I just came, this, came up with this. as a, It's just a gimmick to get me going. I can't tell you how excited I've been of late, more than ever, to do the work of an evangelist. And you'll experience, just like Bill did, and Katie Rose and, and uh, Natty, it's just so exciting and exhilarating to be able, because then you know you're in the right place. Oh, God, what is your will? Am I in your will? Yep, be his voice, and you are smack dab in the center of his will. The Bible says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? The word needs a voice. That's us. Ask God this week to give you, me, eyes to see opportunities to lift up our voices so as to tell people it is time to make straight the way of the Lord. Lord Jesus, that's what we pray right now. Would you grant us the great honor and privilege 
of representing you to at least one person this week and then charge in here on Wednesday, whatever, and tell the rest of us about it so we can rejoice together. Oh, God, thank you for raising us up for this great commission. Flawed though we be, imperfect though we be, still you have entrusted your reputation to one such as us. Oh, God, I pray if we need to, we would commit to memory these little simple 40 words just to get conversation going about you. God in heaven, I pray that for us, for you have entrusted to us in these little earthen vessels a message of great, great hope in a time of increasing hopelessness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us forever. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.